92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, A Taste of Cuba, features acclaimed photographer of Cuban culture, Cynthia Caris Alonzo, her husband, Jose Luis Alonzo, and chef Valerie Fagan. It was recorded on April 26, 2018, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Excellent. Thank you so much, Christine, and thank you so much to the 92nd Street Y for having us here tonight, and thank you to all of you for coming tonight. We're so happy to have you join us. I'm Cynthia Caris Alonso. I'm the photographer of all the photos in A Taste of Cuba, as well as the author of the non-recipe text, because our book is organized by chapters, where each chapter is about a different neighborhood, and we take you through the history and photos of the neighborhood, as well as recipes from the top chefs in that neighborhood in a paladar. Does anybody know, does everyone know what a paladar is? A paladar is in Cuba only, is actually a private restaurant in somebody's home. And that's different than a government owned restaurant. We're gonna talk a little bit later about how that's even possible in a communist country. Um, but all the recipes in this book are from paladars. And um, we will take you through that a little bit later. And I'm Valerie Feigen. I am an old friend and the test kitchen for this, for this cookbook. Um, so what does that mean to be a test kitchen? In this case, it means that I had to first convert Spanish into English, uh, convert metric into our measurements. And the real challenge for both Cynthia and I was to make sure that we were accurately and authentically capturing what the chefs wanted to say in their food and how they were making their dishes. And a lot of these dishes had never, recipes had never been written down. So it was a real challenge. We called the chefs um, periodically, very often, and Cynthia went back and forth to Cuba and met with them in their kitchens and asked my questions. <laughs> <laughs> so how many people in the room have been to Cuba? Nice. And how many are here and you want to go to Cuba? Excellent. <laughs> Even better. Well, tonight we're going to take you on a journey to Cuba. So welcome to the Malecon, the seawall in Havana, uh, 90 miles south of American shores, south of Key West. We're going to introduce you through stories and information about the Cuban culture, as well as the culinary revolution that's happening around the country. So it is true. Cynthia and I met when we were five. And you might ask, how do two girls growing up in New York City end up putting together and publishing a Cuban cookbook? It's a very good question. It started from. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure, but when I know, I'll call you. So <laughs> it started for me um, at my son's bar mitzvah. And Cynthia and her husband, Jose Luis, who's born in Cuba and raised in Cuba, um, he's said, here tonight for questions later about what it was like growing up in Cuba in a famous artist family. They suggested that we come down to Cuba for a tour and learn about the art. And I went with my daughter, Alex, who's not actually here tonight. And we went in March of 2013 to study art. And I ended up studying the cookie. And the cookie is what you are, may have seen or maybe eaten by now. Please eat. The, and there's more after. And the, the genesis of the cookie is we were staying at the Saratoga Hotel. And every cappuccino came with one cookie, just one. So I had to keep ordering cappuccinos. And I kept eating. <laughs> And I kept eating this, and I couldn't figure it out. And I said to Cynthia, can we meet the baker? And within a few minutes, the baker was sitting at our table. She doesn't speak English. Cynthia was translating, and I said, how do you make this? And she gave us the ingredients. But what she basically said was butter, flour, salt, sh sugar, and egg. 
And I said, how much? And she gave us enough for hundreds of cookies. <laughs> and I said, is there any other trick? Are you, are you sure she's telling me the truth? But you know, professional chefs never tell you that one secret ingredient. But she said, no, this is it. This is everything. And I went home. For, and for the next several years, I made 50 batches of cookies. And I sent them over to Cynthia constantly. And I made them with margarine. I made them with butter. I made them with flour. And I made them with cornstarch. And the ones you're eating today are her exact recipe. But what changed for me was when Cynthia went back to Cuba, spoke to the, ba to the baker, and she said, um, don't refrigerate them, roll them out, cut them immediately. And that's what I did. <laughs> so as Valerie mentioned, I've been going back and forth to Cuba for many years, actually 25 years, since 1992. Some of you may have come to my other talks for my first book, Passage to Cuba, which was more of my photojournalism that I did for Newsweek and Businessweek and record companies in the 1990s. Um, so I saw a lot of changes through my years. And that book was my ticket, actually, to this book. After my editor and I did that book, we thought, let's do a cookbook. People like cookbooks. Well, where was I going to get the recipes? I had seen so many changes in Cuba, and I saw that paladars were growing. And um, so I thought of getting the recipes from Cuba's top chefs. When I went with Valerie in 2013, one of the biggest changes I saw was a new freedom of expression. When I first went to Cuba in 1992, it was illegal for Cubans to talk to foreigners. Um, there have been a lot of changes. Cubans feel free to express themselves now and to talk to foreigners. In fact, they welcome you. Um, but one, th I like this picture because it really shows the sense of humor of the Cuban people, the rebellious nature, and um, the ironies that you'll see when you go. In the back of the old American car, you see the Apple logo here, which has become a status symbol to have in your old American car in a country where it's illegal to buy Apple products and Wi-Fi is spotty for locals. I, um, I've enjoyed going back to Cuba. I've loved going back for so many reasons. Um, it was, of course, historic to photograph former President Obama's trip there. I photographed his town hall style meeting with Soledad O'Brien of CNN here. She was kind enough to write a back cover blurb for our book. And um, they spoke with entrepreneurs, Cuba's top entrepreneurs in a communist country. Again, we're going to talk about how that's possible. Um, but they met with entrepreneurs of the country, and many of them are in our book. And after Obama's trip, there were so many changes sweeping the country. The two countries, Americans and Cubans, were really reunited again for um, the first time in decades. And you now see Cuban and American flags everywhere. If you go and you're wearing a Yankee hat, that's their favorite team. They love all baseball teams, though, because it's their national sport, too. Um, but really, the countries were reunited. This is where Obama dined. It's the San Cristobal Paladar. And um, if you go check out this room, in the corner over here is the wine glass that Michelle Obama and her mom drank out of, and the wine bottle, as well as the coffee cup that Obama drank out of. He doesn't drink while he's working. Alcohol. Um, but I love this paladar because Carlos is the owner. And it is in his home. As I mentioned, paladars need to be in one's home. And he is so warm and welcoming. He goes to every table to check on you and make sure you're enjoying the food. And he gives you free cigars and after dinner drinks at the end. And it's really a lovely party. Um, his mom and his grandmother were cooks to the wealthy in the 1950s. And he is now cooking their dishes, their recipes, 
as one of Cuba's most successful entrepreneurs. So when Cynthia said she was doing a Cuban cookbook, I asked her if she was testing the recipes. And she paused and said, I'm a journalist and a photographer. I'm not a cook. <laughs> and I said, OK. Um, and she knew I'd been uh, struggling with the cookie. And so I was clearly already hooked. And <laughs> so I, she sent me, this was the first recipe I tried. And this is called um, Orange Supreme Fish. And it's Carlos's recipe. And there's two things, a couple things that are very interesting about it. First, I don't know if you know what it means to supreme an orange. I didn't. It, it, um, so the first thing I did was Google how do you supreme an orange. It turns out we all know how to do it. We learned it when we were little kids, but it's, it has a name. And then uh, the chef, when Cynthia was writing down the recipe with him, he said he uses a cup of, a coffee cup size of olive oil. Did everybody hear that? He told a me that his recipe was a coffee cup size of olive oil. Imagine a recipe where they say, use a coffee cup size of olive oil. What is that? So I figured it was this. So I poured that into here, and I figured, OK, it's about a cup, because I can't put in a book a coffee cup. So I said, it's a cup of olive oil. And I drowned the fish in grease. So then we, <laughs> so then I figured, wait, they drink espresso. So it's either a double espresso or a single espresso, turns out. It was a single espresso coffee cup that he was using, which is two tablespoons of olive oil, which is in the book. And Carlos, like many of the chefs, as Cynthia said, was trained by his grandmother and his mom. But the other chefs have also been trained. They've been trained in cooking schools in Cuba and in cooking schools abroad. Yeah. So at San Cristobal, you can get more traditional, what we think of as Cuban foods, chicken, rice, and beans, and plantains, maduros, delicious. Um, and these are, I thought that's why Obama ate there for the more traditional food. But Cuba's not all rice and beans anymore. This is one of my favorite dishes, Ropa Vieja, which I think of as just another version of Jewish brisket. And you add the cumin, and it's the same dish. <laughs> However, there aren't a lot of cows in Cuba. Surprisingly, uh, cows are not only rare, but they're also highly regulated by the government. The government gets to decide who owns a cow and what they can do with them. So a lot of paladars, restaurants, are serving ropa vieja with pork. If you don't eat pork, be sure to ask. You can eat outside at Atelier at their beautiful outdoor garden, or inside where you can have um, a meal cooked this is duck a l'orange, and as Valerie mentioned, the chef went to the Paul Bocuse Cooking School in France to study, and he brought back French technique and combined it with his Cuban twists and serves it with rice and beans. So this dish was an octopus salad, and um, when the enormous octopus arrived in my kitchen, Jose Luis came over and taught me how to blanch it in boiling water. So thank you. If you like octopus salad, this it's, recipe is a really good one. It is. Um, what's interesting about this dish, also from Atelier, was that it's, um, a lot of the chefs are using smoked fish, which is not something you would think would be down in Cuba, but it has started in the last few years. So this uh, recipe arrived with uh, serving for about two or three people of smoked salmon, but enough pesto for an entire restaurant for the week. So again, the first time I drowned my cream cheese with pesto, and I said to Cynthia, OK, I need to know exactly how much pesto goes in the cream cheese, and we called down to Cuba. So as I mentioned, the Paladar, as you'll see the word up here, is a private restaurant in somebody's home. 
and I highly recommend that you dine in them when you go to Cuba. They're, uh, this is Los Mercaderes. They all try to be different from one another. You can dine in a contemporary style, all black and white, highly designed, chic, Paladar Elite in Miramar, or dine in a French antique bedroom. <laughs> um, they're all different. And uh, here at La Cocina de Lilium, you can eat in her beautiful, lush, tropical gardens. Enjoy being in the tropics. Cuba is in the tropics. Um, this is David. He is a chef in the southern part of Cuba, known as Trinidad, Cuba. It's a historic city, very lovely small town, um, which has been designated as a UNESCO heritage site, and they get money to renovate the town. David wanted to be a cooking chef on TV. He, the Cubans love our TV cooking shows, and he wanted to be one in Cuba. But in Cuba, the government decides what your career is, and they did not give David the permission to be a TV cooking chef. So um, now he has gone to Spain, come back with these beautiful Spanish tiles, and he built his own open-style California kitchen, and he says every lunch and dinner is a cooking show for his guests. He designed a grill to, serve, uh, to cook that goes up and down to adjust the heat temperature, and he now serves lobster. Definitely worth going there if you go. But David wasn't always allowed to serve lobster. So how does one have a private restaurant in a communist country? Well, as you may know, the Soviet Union, a little bit of history now. So the Soviet Union had been a sugar daddy, literally, to Cuba for decades. Uh, they bought sugar from Cuba at higher than market value in exchange for having a presence close to US shores. Take your minds back to the late 80s, early 90s, when you, those of you who are around then, when you uh, opened up the newspaper and every day another Eastern European country was having a peaceful revolution and the Soviet Union was dismantling. Well, as you can imagine, Russia had their own problems and they pulled almost overnight, they pulled their support for Cuba. Cuba went into crisis economically. Um, my husband grew up in Cuba in the 60s, 70s, 80s. He had plenty of resources and supplies like electricity and gas and toilet paper, things that we take for granted. But all of a sudden in the special period, these necessities were actually hard to find. And Fidel Castro called this the special period. Well, that's actually just when I arrived to Cuba in 1992. So this was one of my first photos. Back then I had film. I had two cameras on me, one with black and white, one with color film. And um, I loved this picture. People saw this photo when I got back and they'd say, you're too young. Is this from the 1940s, 1950s? Did you really take this? Well, that is what Cuba looked like in 1992. And it still looks like that. Um, they like to think that the old American cars are their legacy of the history of relations between the two countries. So it's fun. You do get to see all the old American cars. After I took this photo, I actually got lost. Um, again, it's now 1992. Cuba had not opened up to tourism, so there was a paper shortage, there were no maps, there were no guidebooks, um, and I was lost. So I happened to ask a guy for directions in the street. That guy has now been my husband for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> so Jose Luis and his friends wanted to show me Cuba. They said, please tell the world what's going on. Nobody is talking about what's happening in Cuba. We're in a crisis here. 
And of course, I was at Newsweek when I asked my editors why we weren't doing any stories about Cuba. And they said, Cuba's not a story. There's nothing happening there. Nothing's changing. Eastern Europe's where the change is happening. And I thought, well, why isn't Cuba a story? And why do we have a US embargo? So I wanted to go and find out what Cuba was like. Two weeks later, I was on a plane to Cuba photogra to photograph musicians. And when I met Jose Luis, he took me on a train to his hometown of San Antonio de los Baños, 45 minutes outside of Havana. Nothing really touristy to see there. Um, but I looked out the window and I saw the land. This is where, this is the color of their soil. We have brown dirt. This is their dirt. It's very fertile and rich of nutrients. And by default, Cuba went organic because the Soviets weren't sending pesticides and uh, chemicals for their food anymore. Cuba has since tried to stay organic. There's a whole movement now happening with California farmers trying to keep Cuba organic. You can imagine Monsanto and other companies think of it as an emerging market and would love to sell their chemicals to Cuba. But hopefully they stay organic. So back in 1992, the only business that could be private was to be a barber. And again, it's a communist country and it's not the same communism as other communist countries. They like to call it fidelism at the time. Um, but you could be a private barber. Everybody went to get their hair cut. And it was actually a country with the communist belief that psychiatry is only for the real crazies. And um, so they couldn't go to therapists and, and have therapy. And so they go to their barber and tell the barber all their issues. My husband still gets his hair cut when he's having a bad day. <laughs> um, I was walking around and I looked at the walls. Um, these are the outside of homes. These doors are closed because they don't necessarily know when they're gonna have electricity. Not everybody can afford air conditioners. And so they close the door so the heat of the sun doesn't come in. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. It looks like an artsy neighborhood, maybe East Village, artsy, cool. And um, I said this to Jose Luis and his friends and they said, actually to us, this is very depressing. This shows us the lack of resources and paint and materials and the economic crisis that we're in. And I realized it's very different seeing Cuba with a New York perspective than actually living there as a Cuban. Something to think about when you go. Back then you could only get clothes and materials in government run stores. This was a clothing store. Can you imagine going to Valerie and Alyssa's store, edit, and this is what you see? Not gonna happen. Um, but people were allowed to take what was called their libretta. It was a booklet that you get one pair of jeans per year, and you go and you get your jeans, sorry. Um, and uh, you know, imagine not much there to choose from. Um, Valerie noticed when she first came to Cuba, this is a country with no packaging, no plastic, no boxes. We saw people carrying cakes on their hands. And she's right, there's very little materials, although that's changing and unfortunately styrofoam has gotten there, but hopefully they'll get wiser about that soon. Um, my husband calls this imaginary toys because these kids are playing with rocks and stones and the Cubans are just so creative and resourceful. They work with what they have and they are survivors. Uh, this woman trained for 10 years to be able to make the Monte Cristo number no. two cigars here. As you know, Cuba has uh, high quality cigars. It's one of their biggest exports of the country. And she had to train for 10 years to get the permission to make these. But soap and shampoo are very expensive and hard to find for Cubans. And so she's wearing a flower in her hair as decoration, but also to smell better. After all, perfume comes from flowers. 
these guys were working in a meat market that started up in the mid-90s with the crisis of a lack of food because the Russians had stopped supporting Cuba. A couple of these markets opened up. They were expensive for most Cubans. Meat is still a luxury. My stepson, who's a famous Cuban painter, sometimes has to decide whether to buy paint or meat for dinner. Um, but uh, these guys were hamming it up. In true Cuban sense of humor or spirit, they were having a good time. And I went back 20 years later to photograph the same market, and prices had soared, but salaries had not. So in the mid-90s, as the Soviets pulled out, there was a crisis of food. And so people like David, the guy with the open California kitchen, started to serve food in his home in secret. And people who liked to cook started to have these secret illegal businesses in their homes. Well, the government sort of turned the other way because they couldn't feed the people. So how could you put someone in jail for feeding people? Um, but eventually, they did sort of sense competition with government-run restaurants. And so they would persecute and go after some of these people. So a few families, a handful of five families, three of which are in our book, um, five of them petitioned the government for the permission to have a paladar. Now, any of you know Latina culture and they love their novellas, their soap operas. And there was a popular one from Brazil at the time where a woman had a paladar, a restaurant in her home. So Cubans started to get permission to have paladars and that's how the private business of paladars started. Um, and then in the year 2000, I did this for Business Week, Americans, uh, we still have a US economic embargo against Cuba, even though Obama changed things by executive order. It has to be an act of Congress to end our embargo. But in 2000, Congress amended the embargo to allow American farmers to sell their excess grains and foods to Cuba for cash. So it was win-win. Cuba was getting food. It was cheaper to bring it over from the United States. And American farmers were getting cash. Um, The black market has always been a source of getting supplies, and it still is. Uh, people who run paladars do not have access to wholesale markets or materials for their dishes and ingredients. And uh, this guy just sells bananas on the back of his bike every day. I saw a lot of changes in Cuba as I went back and forth documenting the politics and the culture. I saw the country change from Fidel to Raul. And under Raul, he came in in 2008 when Fidel Castro announced that he was stepping aside. And Raul actually instigated more economic reforms than I'd seen in all the years I'd been going to Cuba. He started to, he, they had opened up the country to tourism in the mid-90s. So since the mid-90s, the whole rest of the world has been going to Cuba, just not Americans. Um, but what Raul Castro did was he started to move the country towards the China model of economic freedoms with political control. And so he has completely encouraged private businesses and that's how you now have lots of entrepreneurs and paladars. We've gone from five paladars in the country in the mid 90s, those first few pa families that petitioned, to more than 2,000 paladars around the country. So now with the increase of tourism and the increase of private business, there is a lot more gas in Cuba. Um, you'll see a lot of cars on the road. You'll see a lot of infrastructure development. And Revolutionary Plaza, where Fidel Castro gave hours of speeches, is now sort of Disneyland for tourism, where you can go and ride in an old American car with Che. 
Um, when I first went to Cuba, this is Plaza Vieja, this was all rubble, and it's now been completely renovated. It's a beautiful place. It's one of the five plazas of Old Havana, where I highly encourage you to walk around. You can see the renovated windows. They've all been beautifully renovated to their original style. So from politics back to Paladars, this is La Goida, which is one of the original five. And when you walk in, it truly looks like a ruin. There's a headless torso that greets you at the bottom of the very well-worn, a little bit scary marble steps. But when you get upstairs, you're in the middle of an absolutely beautiful restaurant. This um, was also one of the early dishes I tried. And the first recipe for this particular dish, Cynthia brought me, it, it was a fish, uh, marlin was the fish that they used. We can't get marlin here. So the closest I could get was swordfish. And the swordfish was supposed to be poached in two bottles of rum for hours. <laughs> so it, was, it was really good. And then, <laughs> and then Cynthia went back. And it was this is a perfect example of two things. One of how they use the ingredients they can get. And also how we really um, made sure that this book accurately and authentically reflects exactly what the chefs wanted it to do, to say. And so um, when Cynthia went back, they said, oh no, there's a purveyor down the street and he's providing us with smoked whitefish. So that's what we want in the book. And that is, I'm sorry to say, there's no longer a drunk swordfish recipe in the book, but, if, but it, it was fun making it. The other thing that's interesting <laughs> about this particular dish is the taco shells are made out of um, a yam called a boniato, which is a white starchy yam, which if you slice very thin with a mandolin and you deep fry and then you use tongs, you can shape it into this very cute taco shell. Um, but you can't use this, a sweet potato. You actually have to be able to find a boniato, which in, in New York we can find it. We have Latino stores and that's great, but otherwise you'd have to use a regular taco shell. Um, back to the use of rum, this is an, El Cocinero makes a cheeseburger that literally took me all day to make because they make their own bread. The uh, meat is cooked three different ways. It, it's very complicated. It's also the best cheeseburger you'll ever eat and the onions are sauteed in butter and rum. This is a local market. It is actually one of the better and best possibly local markets in Havana. So the home cooks, this is where they're shopping. You can only cook what you can buy here. And even some of the restaurateurs, the paladar owners, would come here to fill in. Um, when you go to Cuba, you'll see some of these markets. And this is something new. They're everywhere. And there are also people selling these vegetables and fruits out in the street. That's great for the Cubans who didn't have food. Now they do. Not so great for you traveling. Your stomachs aren't really used to the water down there. So um, be sure you drink bottled water when you go and, um, or boiled water. If you're staying in somebody's home, they'll often say, oh, it's boiled, it's fine. And it is. Um, if you go to the paladars that are in our book, all the fruits and vegetables have been washed with filtered water. So you can eat anything in these upper scale nice paladars. I wouldn't necessarily go to where the Cubans are getting their uh, dishes. So while I was working on this book, I went to Al Carbon Paladar in Old Havana, one of my favorites. And it's owned by Chef Ivan Justo. He was actually a chef to Fidel Castro for many years. And he owns two Paladars, one on top of another. Uh, Ivan Justo is upstairs and Al Carbon is downstairs. And they're kind of different. Mick Jagger ate upstairs. It's kind of private. You can kind of go low key. Um, and downstairs is a more open Italian feeling uh, restaurant. But I asked Luis here for his recipe for his chicken al carbone. And he said, oh, it's easy. You get a chicken and you cook it. 
I said it might be easy for you, but I'm a photographer. If I give you my camera and, can, and I say, take a picture, can you do it? And he goes, no, 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 no. So I said, okay, well, can you please give me the recipe? And he said, well, it's never been written down. So many chefs just cook from their grandmothers, their mothers, their family who have taught them, or they've gone to cooking school outside the country or in the country and they've learned how to cook, but the recipes don't get written down. It's hard to find paper and pen. So I gave Luis paper and pen and I sat with him while he gave us the recipe and I came back and Valerie tested it. This, sorry, this is a um, arroz con pollo dish where the chef also had never had the recipe written down, but he teared with joy that we were gonna publish his grandmother's recipe in our American cookbook. This is a great recipe to start with. I also want to add that that is an absolutely beautiful leaf of arugula, and so the chefs do have access to some unbelievable produce. There is a list also in the book of um, uh, different ingredients if you can't get the actual ingredients. Substitutions that you, need. Substitutions, that you might need to do you. here. This is cuatro uh, de leches cake, which is everybody's favorite. And what's really fascinating about this is it looks like a can of sweetened condensed milk with some caramel on top. They actually take the can of sweetened condensed milk, take out all the ingredients, and use that as the serving dish. So within that is layers of cake and cream and, uh, and the it's dulce delicious. de leche. <laughs> cuatro leches, a Cuban classic. This is the Ayako soup, and um, you can get it at Cafe Ayako, which is near Hemingway's house, and Valerie will tell you a little bit more about Hemingway, who lived there for many years. But um, they serve a delicious Ayako soup, but Cubans across the country and Cuban families everywhere make an Ayako soup. My husband explained, this is sort of like everything but the kitchen sink on Friday night goes into the, whatever's left in the kitchen and the refrigerator goes into making your stew. This is um, El Cocinero's Japanese rice and seaweed salad, which they made because they got a supply of Japanese rice and seaweed. And when they ran out of it, they took it off the, the menu. It's no longer there. So some of the dishes in our book you might have eaten if you've been to these restaurants, and they might taste differently when you make them because they're constantly changing the recipe based on what incre ingredients they can get. They're also constantly changing the menu when you go. One. Um, one palate our owner told me, thank God for the chalkboard, because every night he has to change the menu on the chalkboard and tell you what's available that night. Um, I just want to add that the challenge for the two of us was Cynthia had seen the dishes, and I was making the dishes. So she would come over, I would make them, and, we would, and she would eat them. And then she would say, yes, this is what it tasted like, and this is what it looked like. And of course, our families agreed if it tasted good or not. Um, but just an example of how, what some of the challenges are to have a paladar, your private business, even though it's being encouraged by the government, you have a plot of land, grow something and sell it. You have uh, a house, move the family into one bedroom, share the bedroom, rent out a room. Airbnb is now a way to find a place to stay when you go to Cuba. But I, when I first started making this book, um, I had a mixed green salad at Elite Mir in Miramar. And I thought, how is it possible that they got mixed green salad? Every time I'd been to Cuba, they had one type of lettuce, and it was iceberg. So I went to the chef, and I asked him, and he said, ah, I'll tell you my secret. I have a friend in Spain who sends me the seeds. I have another friend who has a farm, and we plant the seeds on her farm. I have another friend who has a truck, and he brings me the different kinds of greens from the farm to the paladar. And that's how you get a mixed green salad in Cuba. So Cuba is actually quite 
preventative in their health care. Um, you might have heard they have great minds. The doctors are incredible. They export their doctors. Um, their minds are amazing. Resources are quite limited. You can go as a Cuban for supplies. My husband was just in Cuba and he couldn't test his blood sugar. He's diabetic and they didn't have a machine to test his sugar. But um, you'll see this is a doctor in Cuba who is a family doctor. That's what they have. The whole family goes to the same doctor because they believe that so much of what's going on is genetic and what you have, your family might get or you might have gotten it from your family. And so she has files here and notice the files. They are still dealing with old scraps of paper to keep files, not computerized completely. Um, but she knows where every family file is and she also has on the wall here a whole chart of medicinal ways to use natural herbs. Here, we have a headache, we take a pill. We have a problem, we go and take medicine. There, they don't have access to medicines like Tylenol and Band-Aids and things that we take for granted. So they have learned, every Cuban knows how to use herbs medicinally. Um, this is the western part of the country, it's called Pinar del Rio, like we have New York, New York. They have the city of Pinar del Rio in the province of Pinar del Rio. I highly recommend taking a day trip or longer to visit. It's a um, very special area of land. It's where, the, as you can see, the earth is quite fertile. They have special maggots of, um, these are called maggot mountains, and there are thousands of caves in there. You can actually go in and take a little boat ride through the caves and um, the indigenous people used to live there and slaves used to escape and hide in those caves. Um, and there's some art inside and you can go in and see them. But this is also a part of the country where the tobacco comes from and you can go and see the tobacco being made and harvested and where the sugar comes from and where a lot of the herbs come from. This is Paraiso Paladar, which is also in our book and I highly recommend going and eating there. For $10 a person, you can eat as much as you want, it's served family style and it's great foods, organic, all organic, real farm to table. There's the farm, there's the table. And they'll take you for a guided tour of the farm. You can learn in English, be sure you ask for Martin, he's the best guide. Um, and you can get a tour of what to plant next to each other. If anybody has a garden, he'll tell you, you know, oh, this is invasive or this is uh, how you keep your soil fertile and it's really fun. When you arrive, they serve you an anti-stress drink, which is five medicinal herbs, including lemongrass, which is hard to find, but you can find it on Amazon. Valerie ordered it from Amazon, and she tested this drink, and it's true, it works. It's anti-stress. Who doesn't need an anti-stress drink? <laughs> um, one of the major crops and energizers, of course, in Cuba is coffee. This is La Guaida's recipe. They start with sweetened condensed milk, espresso, a twist of lemon, and a sprinkle of, of cinnamon. This is uh, two of my favorite medicines, sugar and chocolate. And <laughs> the triple chocolate mousse cake at La Guaida. Highly recommend it. So one of the reasons I love the Cuban culture and going back is they have such a high appreciation for artists, and this is Jose Fuster. He, it's like watching Picasso work. Um, he was a painter for many years in Cuba and he decided that he had so much energy he couldn't sleep and so he'd get up in the middle of the night and he'd start tiling his house. And this is where he lives. I highly recommend you go. It's called Fusterlandia. 
and you should definitely, it's about 20 minutes outside of Havana, get a taxi, they'll wait for you, go see Fusterlandia. But not only did he tile his whole house here with lots of symbols, you can look and you'll see the Cuban flag and symbols of the culture, there are dancers, he's all about love and their hearts and there's poetry and it's on the ocean, he's a ocean seaside guy and you'll see lots of mermaids and fish in his work um, and they call him the Gaudi of Cuba but his neighbors started to say, well, when are you going to do my house? When are you going to do my house? So he has now done more than 50 homes in the town of Jaimenitas, including the sidewalks and the streets. So it's definitely worth your time to go to Jaimenitas and walk around the streets. Uh, this is a cake that they serve when you come to visit, if you're lucky, this cake. And the recipe for this gave a careful description of how to make the sponge cake. And the icing was make a meringue and add the butter. So that meringue is how they say icing, and there's only one kind of icing. So they just told Valerie, oh, you just make the icing. She so said, how? We called them, and then I just went with what tasted really good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so a little culture now. As I mentioned, Cuba really loves its artists, and there's a strong appreciation for culture and art. If you've been, you've been to the Prado. This is the main boulevard that separates Central Havana from Old Havana. And if you're going, be sure to check out all the old American cars that are parked outside. This is the Capitol building. It's now been renovated, the scaffolding's off, and you can go inside for a tour. They are moving their government offices into that Capitol, and it was built to look like our Capitol building in Washington, D.C. You might remember before 1959, the U.S. had a strong connection with Cuba. This is the Alicia Alonso Theater, named after the great ballerina and my husband's aunt. Um, this is where Obama spoke, and it's very beautiful and also has recently been renovated. You can go inside and just look around at the marble brought from Italy and the beautiful renovations, or I highly encourage you to see if they're having a show that night. They have all kinds of performances, and everything is fantastic, from the Spanish dancers to ballet. Cuba has, of course, great music. You were listening to some as you walked in. This is Chucho Valdez, great jazz pianist. You might have seen him touring in the US. You can also see some of the folkloric groups play. This is Salvador's Alley, where you can also visit in Centro Havana. Uh, Salvador is also a painter who turned his neighborhood around. If there's such a thing as a poor neighborhood in a country where everyone is supposed to be equal, uh, this was it. And what he did was he invited artists to come and do murals on this one block of his street, which has been closed off to cars. And it's wonderful to go there and walk around. You can see a rumba show. You can get a history of the Afro-Cuban influences in Salvador's art. And um, Ibrahim Ferrer of Buena Vista Social Club is no longer with us, but there is a Buena Vista Social Club that you can go to and hear that style of music when you're there. Um, this group is called Ocho Mare, and their bodies are hand-painted before each performance by a famous Cuban painter named Mendive, who's coming to Washington, D.C. from May 8th to June 3rd. He'll be painting dancers before their performances. Uh, big Cuban art festival coming. Um, and these dancers each represent the gods and the goddesses of the Yoruban culture that was brought over by the slaves. I hope you'll travel the coast and get to go to the gorgeous Caribbean beaches. There's a coral reef around Cuba which protects it from pollution and any kind of seaweed, garbage, and sharks. So it's fabulous swimming in the waters there. 
And of course, you can go to Varadero. This is the DuPont special, which is served at the DuPont mansion, which is now a hotel, was previously owned by the DuPont family of chemical, DuPont chemicals. DuPont chemicals. And um, this is a pina colada without coconut. It's delicious. <laughs> the Cuba twist on a pina colada. There's lots of great nightlife. You can still go to the famous Tropicana Cabaret. Um, this, a lot of the dancers represent the gods and the goddesses, and this style of cabaret started in Havana and then went to Las Vegas and Paris. Uh, you'll maybe, if you, if you want to be like Hemingway, go to the Bodeguita del Medio and have your mojitos, and go to La Floridita and have your daiquiris. There are five sort of iconic drinks, um, all made with rum. One is the pina colada. The other, the other two are the daiquiris and the, um, there's the cubanita, the daiquiri, the cuba libre, and the mojito. And there are also, of course, lots of non-alcoholic drinks. They fresh, the fruit down there, the fresh juices are amazing. Uh, Hemingway was also a diabetic, and he didn't want so much sugar in his daiquiri. So he went to the Floridita because he'd heard the daiquiris were good, and many of you know Hemingway likes his drinks. Um, but he said, too much sugar. I want more rum, less sugar. So you can get a Papa Doble, which is named after Hemingway, who they called Papa, and it's more rum, less sugar. This is a, uh, one of the bartenders at Floridita who is doing what they call the pour. And this comes from Spain, where they used to do this style of pour with their sidra, their cider. Um, and you'll see a lot of bartenders pouring the rum from up high, and they think that you get a better taste. It opens up the aromas and the taste of the rum. So you'll see a lot of the bartenders kind of showing off with their pour skills. And be sure to go to Fabrica del Arte at night. It's only open from Thursday to Sunday, so try to go over those days because you won't want to miss Fabrica del Arte. It's an old olive oil factory that was shut down and has been renovated to be a sprawling performance space with all different kinds of performances and art. You can see photography, there's a room of photography, there's painting, there's mixed media, there are Sometimes there's a documentary film festival going on, while in other rooms you can see famous Cuban musicians playing. So you can really experience all of it, but as you can see, there's a long line, and Cubans will wait for three hours to get in. But to avoid the line, I highly recommend going to the Tierra Paladar inside. Make a reservation, go have dinner, and then you're in Fabrica for the night. There's wonderful folkloric and traditional performances of dancing everywhere. Be sure to see some of that. And you can drive for hours and only see farms and farmland or no development at all. Um, that's going to change because I was hired by Marriott Hotels to photograph their CEO and the CEO of Starwood meeting with their Cuban counterparts when Obama went and they're planning the development of Cuba. Um, Cubans have an extraordinary appreciation and value for education, and they have one of the highest literacy rates in the world. They are 99% literate. They teach everybody how to read and write. This is the main university. You can go and get a tour. And this is the main lecture hall where um, students go and can get taught in different, these huge murals represent the different fields of study. One is for the arts, one is the sciences, one is philosophy. Um, and like here, it's highly competitive to get in. The, everybody in the country wants to go there. You have to apply, you have to take tests, you have to have interviews. 
Um, it's a grueling application process, but if you get in, it is free. Walking around Trinidad in the south, as I mentioned, you'll see a lot of musicians playing. The north was developed by the Span Spaniards, and you see a great influence in architecture and food from Spain in the north, and the south was colonized by the French. So if you get a chance to experience both the north and the south, you'll see a difference in music, culture, and uh, food. This is the guarapa drink, which you can get at Hemingway's house here. And it's made actually by putting stalks of sugarcane here through this machine and out comes the sugarcane juices. And that's what Cubans all over the country love to drink. It's very refreshing, very cheap, and it's just sugar. <laughs> um, I highly recommend when you go looking around, you'll see folkloric performances, people up on stilts, all kinds of things happening all around you. Be sure to look up. Some of the ceilings are beautifully renovated. This is in the Revolutionary Museum. Be sure to look down. There are no signs. Still a bit of a paper shortage. Um, no signs, no caution, no gates. So be sure, be careful where you're walking because they are uh, developing the infrastructure. Try to imagine what's missing. This is uh, the Vistamar Paladar. It's a beautiful place to eat, to drink, and enjoy the sunset by the ocean. So we hope that you'll all get a chance to follow Yemaya, the goddess of the ocean, and get over to Cuba. But I hope you've enjoyed our virtual trip tonight and through our book, A Taste of Cuba. Thank you all for coming. So we have a little time for questions. You can ask me anything um, about history, Cuba travel. I do Cuba consulting. Um, so I'd be happy to help you plan your itinerary and feel free to ask Valerie about the cooking and the chefs and the food. And if you want to know about growing up in Cuba, you can ask Jose Luis. Any questions, anybody? Don't be shy. There's not such thing as this. Okay, so that's a very good question. Thank you. I wanted to talk about that. So the question was, um, this guest went in 2000 to Cuba with a big group, and that was possible. Um, and she wants to know, is it still possible to go to Cuba? It is still possible to go to Cuba. In fact, um, what our current president has done is just make it more complicated and confusing and scared people from going, but he hasn't really changed much of the, um, the laws on going. What you could do under Obama was go with a group under a people-to-people -people license. You can still do that. There are more than 50 travel groups that are planning trips just to Cuba. And I encourage you, if you want to go with a group, think about what you want to do when you're there. Do you want an art group? There's lots of museums that are doing trips. Do you want a religious group? Do you want to make do donations to a church or a synagogue? Um, the churches and the synagogues are really helping people get access to food and clothing. The main synagogue in Havana is actually, they know where all the Jews around the country are, not just to, uh, to bother them, but because they make sure that they have candles for Shabbat and that they have matzah and supplies. They have a beautiful program if you want to experience and even work with their program. You can go and work with the synagogue. They have a program where they go and they, it's beautification, and they go into the homes of people who can't leave the home and they go and they do their hair and their makeup and they welcome all kinds of donations. If you're making a donation, that falls under the religious category. So there but are 12 different ways you can go to Cuba legally. 
And um, it depends on how you want to go. If you don't want to go with, on a group, you can still go under what's called support for the Cuban people. And that means going to the paladars that are in our book because they're privately owned. You're supporting the Cuban people when you eat in their restaurant. You can stay in an Airbnb and you're supporting Cuban people. There are actually some boutique hotels that you get Wi-Fi, you get transportation, you get um, coffee with breakfast, and it's lovely and it is privately owned. So you do need a visa, but there's two different is issues. One issue is legally going from the United States perspective. So from the United States perspective, you can call JetBlue, Delta, American, any of the airlines, that, and you can fly direct from JFK or Newark. Um, and if you are showing support for the Cuban people, keep an itinerary, um, keep receipts, show that you ate in Paladars, and you supported the Cuban people. As far as the Cubans are concerned, you need a visa to get in when you get there. So the visa that you're buying, you can get right when you check in. And one thing that people don't know when they go direct on JetBlue, the Cuba ticket counter is actually at the arrivals, not the departures from Terminal 5 at JFK. So there are just little things about going to Cuba that are a little bit different than traveling elsewhere. But you can buy your visa right at the ticket counter at the JetBlue desk. It's 100 in at JFK here in the United States. You buy your visa when you check in for your flight. It's $100 for Americans. Um, my husband, who's Cuban, doesn't need a visa to go to Cuba. He's Cuban. But Americans do need to buy a visa from the Cuban government sold by your airline. What it includes is health care when you're in Cuba. Should anything happen to you, you are completely covered to go to the doctors. And if you stay in a hotel, they have doctors 24-7 working in the hotel, and you can see them for free when you're there. So feel chest pains, go see the doctor. They're fabulous. And actually, foreigners have better access to materials and medicines than Cubans do. So yes, it's still legal, and I hope you all get to go. Yeah. Which Ooh. recipe is your favorite or was the most challenging, biggest accomplishment to have done? And what was the biggest disaster? <laughs> okay. I'll have to think about which one I wish I'd, I could have gotten. Um, I think we did pretty well in getting some of the classic yeah. dishes and the best foods. but The biggest disaster was that rice and seaweed. I just, I wrestled with that one. That was hard. And when Cynthia said it's off the menu, I was like, Okay. <laughs> um, there was also the pesto for a week. That um, was, oh, and then there was a half a cup of cumin instead of a teaspoon. There were some messes. Well, Stephen ate that one. That was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen was our test stomach. Um, but because, um, Stephen is Valerie's husband, for those who don't know, um, because the restaurants are cooking large quantities and because so many of these recipes were never written down before I asked them to, um, the, it took an, a certain amount of phone calls and trips to Cuba to make sure that we were accurately representing the real authentic recipe from the chef. And Valerie just did an incredible job at figuring out, oh, I think they left that out. And she'd ask, I would translate on the phone or Jose Luis would translate and she'd say, I think you mean you do this before. And they go, oh yes, but that's obvious. Yeah, <laughs> obvious to them. Thankfully, Valerie figured out what wasn't so obvious, and it's all in our book. They would say, make a sofrito, 
and I said, you can make a sofrito a lot of ways. A sofrito is sauteed um, olive oil and garlic and onions and tomato. So what order? How do you caramelize the onions for anybody who loves to cook? This guy could spend hours talking about that. So I'd ask Cynthia to go back and say, how did they make their sofrito? So that was sort of And a, they would give us instructions that because I'm not really a chef, I didn't realize were not so complete. And Valerie would say, what kind of beef? And so she Oh, I sent her with a picture of a cow? She sent me with a picture of a cow with the different parts labeled, and she said, ask the chef to point. Where does this come from? <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, did you say that you were um, having difficulty finding uh, white sweet potatoes to make a certain... Uh, the boniato. So the question was, how did Valerie find the... What's well, actually called boniato in Cuba to make the tacos of the fish tacos. Very delicious, but Valerie actually bought a mandolin to slice it the way they do. And it has you to be paper thin. Fairway has has them. You can get boniatos at Fairway, Fairway for anybody who boniato. wants to be authentic. But these are white. <laughs> so now you can slice it really thin and deep fry it. <laughs> and there are a lot of Spanish speakers at Fairway who would be glad to help you find the boniato. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, it's a great question. So some of you may have been reading that we have actually now gone from Fidel to Raul to a new president. It was just decided last week in Cuba that Miguel Diaz-Canal is going to be running Cuba. Raul Castro is stepping down. He said he feels that he's getting old, he's had enough time as the leader of Cuba, and he's passed the baton to the vice president of Congress. So as I mentioned, there is a lot of economic reform going on and a lot of freedoms for private business, not so much political freedoms. There's only one guy to vote for. It's required to go vote in the elections, but Miguel was the one to vote for. And people who live in Cuba have gotten used to this. Um, they don't expect a lot of changes under Miguel. There were a lot of changes under Raul. They hope that the economic reforms continue and that things get better. What the Cuban people really want is that the, an end to the U.S. embargo. They say, lift the U.S. embargo and then let us see how we survive in the world. This is actually, I like to say, one of the only bipartisan issues in this country where both Republicans and Democrats would like to end the embargo because Americans want to do business there and Cubans really welcome American business and American travel. So. For the Cubans, they don't expect much change. Um, Raul Castro is still going to be head of the military. They're keeping control of the guns. People don't have guns. It's actually one of the safest places in the world to go. A European study just said that Cuba is one of the safest places in the world to travel to, and it really is true. You feel very safe, particularly as a woman. As a woman alone, I went all the time. I always felt very safe. Um, there were problems with Fidel's revolution, but one of the successes was empowering women and really making them equal. You really feel respected as a woman there. Um, but as far as Miguel Diaz-Canal, probably more of the same for both the Cubans. They're hoping that if we end the embargo, things will be better for everybody, but for now, it's gonna keep going the way it has been. Yeah.
Mm. Interesting question. Is Che still revered? So we tried to keep this about food and not so much about politics, but um, you'll see remnants of what was the revolution. And in 1959, as you may know, um, Fidel Castro won over the control and political leadership of the country through revolution. And Che was one of the revolutionary heroes with Fidel. And so you'll still see remnants of Che's image uh, plastered around. They're just sort of fading away. Um, they don't really get such, he's revered as, uh, by some as a leader of the revolution. Um, when his bones were found in Bolivia, Fidel Castro arranged for them to be sent to Cuba. Actually, I photographed this for Newsweek. One of my former Newsweek editors is here. Um, and they were buried in Cuba. As, um, and there is a Shea Memorial that you can go visit. It's a beautiful museum with lots of information in Santa Clara. Um, you can go and learn all about the history of Che in Cuba. Um, you know, I don't think people today in Cuba really think about him much. Um, he's sort of one of the revolutionary heroes, and that was then, and they'd like to move on into the future. Anybody else? Yeah. So the private businesses um, that are allowed to um, flourish, does the government get anything from that? Great question. Uh, so the question was that now private business is being encouraged, what's in it for the government? And actually a lot's in it for the government. Um, so in the mid 90s, one of the country's ways of dealing with the special period crisis and the loss of Russian support was to open up to tourism and to let their artists travel abroad. So Cuba would let at the time, Cubans really weren't allowed to leave and come back unless you were elderly and they'd say, okay, go stay in Miami, don't come back, we don't want to take care of you. But um, artists would go and travel and they would give about 70% of what they earned on tour back to the government. Um, but that's not a great incentive if you're having a private business. So today, it depends on what your private business is, but you pay the government monthly for the license to have it. It's kind of like the medallions here that taxi drivers have to buy from the city. You buy your medallion and then you go get to be a taxi driver. It's the same in Cuba. The taxi drivers have all been privatized. They used to be all government owned, but they now pay a monthly portion to the government for the right to have a taxi business. And, um, and then the tips are all theirs. Um, it depends on the business, and um, if you're a paladar, you pay a large fee to the government. You are, are constantly, there's still regulations. Regulations have changed. In the beginning, when paladars first started in the mid-90s, you could only have 12 seats at your restaurant. You had to have only family working there. It had to be in your home, and you couldn't serve lobster um, because they wanted that in the government rest restaurants. Now there's less regulation for the Paladars, um, but they still have to give a reporting of what they make and they have to pay a monthly license. If you have something on Airbnb, you ha it's called a license and basically you're paying monthly to the government to have the permission to have a private business. And there are lots of regulations and the regulations change all the time. Um, and that probably will change with Miguel Diaz um, Canal. They're not sure. I mean, nobody, ever, that's just living in Cuba. They're the definition of existentialist living. You have to live in the moment because nobody can predict the future and they don't like to think about the past. Anybody else? Yeah. I was in Cuba about a year ago and at the 
was the change of rules meant that you now had to be on a tour, the prices quintupled, you end up in these horrible $4 night hotels, and it just totally changed. So, the, yeah. You said something very different. Right. You said support for the human people sounds like the check the box. This is the piece that a lot of people don't know. The question was that he went to Cuba a year ago, he checked the box people to people, he stayed in the expensive hotels. The, the hotels are beautiful, renovated, most of them are very nice. They're, oh, you did stay in Airbnb, okay. Well, um, what has been part of the complication is that there's an, the people to people box is still available, but to go on a people to people trip, you have to go with an eight, a travel agency that plans your trip, it's gotta be 10 or more people, so you're traveling in a group, on a bus, with a Cuban tour guide, and you all have to go on the same flight there and the same flight home. There's no flexibility, and you're following an itinerary that's been approved by both governments. Both the US and Cuba have approved these itineraries and these places to go on your people-to-people -people trips. That was lovely, that was something that Obama did, but people started to go to the beaches and divert from the itineraries. How, how can you blame them? But um, what our current president has done is there's a new category, which is support for the Cuban people. And politicians like Marco Rubio have um, never been to Cuba, actually, but they're running our Cuba policy. And a few people from Florida have positioned themselves in Congress on the committees that vote on the embargo. And ending the embargo never gets out of committee for a full Congress vote because of these politicians that want the embargo in place. Um, but there has been a new change since your trip when um, you can mark the box support for the Cuban people. And you can go on your own. You can call and make your own travel plans. You just do need, I recommend, I mean, I don't think anyone's ever gonna come after you. That could change. Um, it, to be safe, keep your receipts, show that you stayed in an Airbnb. You supported the Cuban people by staying in someone's home. That's a private business. Keep your dinner receipts from when you paid for going to a Paladar, that's support for the Cuban people. When you go visit Fooster and you pay an entrance fee, that's support for the Cuban people. So if you have any questions, um, I do consulting and there's lots of companies that do consulting. The Center for Cuban Studies is here in New York and they arrange trips and they also um, have an art gallery where you can see Cuban art here in New York. Um, I think we're running out of time. Yeah, I think um, if anyone has any further questions, you can take them to the signing table, but um, please help me thank, thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you for listening to this 92Y program. For more information, visit 92Y.org. This program is copyright 2018 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.